All right, Paul, you think you're ready for this? I'm ready. Off we go. Road trip for the DIA Connections crew. Starting route to Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. We're only going to go a few miles from DIA headquarters, and Siri was purely for dramatic purposes. And I don't think it worked. Proceed to the route. One of the most visited museums in the world is the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. They have two locations, and we're heading to the one on the mall in Washington, D.C. So what do you remember about the first thing you see when you walk in that building? When you first walk in, you're in this very large space, you know, super tall ceiling. And a couple of things that are of interest in there that really stand out are some very large missiles, including a Soviet SS-20 and a U.S. Pershing II. Those missiles were eliminated as part of the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, better known as the INF Treaty. It was signed on December 8, 1987, by President Ronald Reagan and Soviet Union Premier Mikhail Gorbachev. The missiles are the reason for our trip. Okay, wow, here I am again. This is such an amazing space. It never ceases to impress me. Wow, and there they are. There's the two missiles, the, the SS-20 and the Pershing II. Wow, all the way to the roof. Amazing. This is DIA Connections. About how long did it take for these missiles to reach their targets? It would have been a matter of minutes. It would be mutual assured destruction, most likely. And the world as we knew it would never be the same. The one thing I had not counted on was that one person's mind was, in effect, changed overnight by the movie. And that was Ronald Reagan. Conversations about nuclear ballistic missiles, the execution of launch orders for the missiles, and a pair of movies that may have influenced the president to eliminate them. We're calling this episode INF Treaty Part 1, Missiles and Movies. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and the General Secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The INF Treaty was a watershed moment in the Cold War and in the relationship between the two superpowers. Strong and fundamental moral differences continue to exist between our nations, but today, on this vital issue, at least we have seen what can be accomplished when we pull together. In 1985, Reagan and Gorbachev, the world's two most powerful men, met for a summit in Geneva, Switzerland, and then again the following year in Reykjavik, Iceland. The latter is regarded as a pivotal moment in nuclear disarmament history. Mr. President, have you made any real progress, sir? We have an agreement, Mr. President! We have an agreement, sir! Here's Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. He said, what is amazing is that everyone seemed to feel that something serious was about to happen, something that would change the situation in the world. Deals between adversarial nations with a lot of history involve lots of details. No need for us to recapitulate all of them here. Instead, we'll offer up some stories in this podcast and the podcast that follows that are a bit more obscure. We like those. But first, let's get an understanding of the Defense Intelligence Agency's contribution to the historic treaty. No treaty before has ever uh, been based on as much verification and 
on-site inspection and so forth as this one. These are, this is what has been holding it up for so long until we finally got over that hurdle. DIA inspectors would monitor and report on the elimination of these missile systems. Destruction of the weapons began on June 1st, 1988, and was completed three years later. But not all the missiles were destroyed. And that's why we went to the Air and Space Museum. The 1987 treaty expressly provided that 15 missiles covered by the treaty, their launchers and support equipment, could be retained solely for static display. That's, of course, after they were uh, rendered inoperable. Jim David is a curator at the museum and an expert on ballistic missiles. He played tour guide to our chief historian, Paul Isaacson. So, Jim, as, we, as we're standing here, you know, beside these huge things and this giant room we're in, I'm, I mean, about how tall is this? I mean, this is a huge room, and that SS-20 is almost to the ceiling. The SS-20 is about uh, 17 or 18 meters tall, which is about uh, five stories. So if you were to lay that missile down on the on the goal line. It would reach almost to the 20-yard line on that side of the field. Amazing. During the firing sequence, signals from the programmer test station control the functions of the erector launcher. Why is the Soviet SS-20 so much larger than the American? It's much larger because, first of all, it carried three nuclear warheads. That's a much heavier payload than one. And it had a much bigger a larger, more powerful propulsion system because it had a longer range than the U.S. Pershing II. About how far did these go? The SS-20 was developed to hit targets anywhere between about 300 and 3,200 miles away from the launch point. On the other hand, the Pershing II's maximum range was about 1,100 miles. About how long did it take for these missiles to reach their targets? once they launched. It would have been a matter of minutes. The Army says that the Pershing II can fly up to a thousand miles in under 10 minutes and drop a nuclear warhead on a target with surgical precision. Can you say anything about what the fatalities that would have been caused by these missiles had they been used? Let's take, for example, the SS-20, one of its nuclear warheads, hit Paris. The casualties would be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths immediately, and then following that, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths from burns, blast injuries, and then radiation. This is Hiroshima, the day after the atom bomb exploded over Japan's seventh largest city, and etched its message of doom to an empire. Heat traveling at the speed of... Even this warhead was, I think, more powerful than the Nagasaki? Many, many times more. Many, many times more. The Hiroshima warhead had a yield of about 15 kilotons, and the Nagasaki warhead about 20 kilotons. And the warheads carried by both the Pershing II and the SS-20 had much larger yields. By the early 1980s, the anti-nuclear weapons movement had a full head of steam. The rally for nuclear disarmament 
in New York City's Central Park in 1982 was overwhelming proof of that. The demonstration was far larger than any during the anti-war movement of the late 1960s and early 70s. Social activist Abby Hoffman was there. I think it's a turning point, uh, you know, for the whole country and hopefully the whole world. This is the movement of the 80s. There is no doubt about it. This is the issue of the 80s. Estimates put the crowd at one million. It's still one of the largest attended protest demonstrations on one day in one city. Musician and activist Joan Baez was there too. People have been moved and they're beginning to realize that the terror is not just of the Russians. The terror is of the fact that these nuclear things exist and that they are threatening our lives and we must put some trust in, in attempting to stop the arms race rather than trusting every single morning and when we get up that we're going to make it through that day. But the fact is that they have... The INF Treaty required the U.S. and USSR to eliminate ground-launched nuclear ballistic and cruise missiles that could hit targets from approximately 310 to 3,400 miles. Emphasis is on the word ground in that sentence, meaning it excluded missiles at other locations, like underwater. Missiles from submarines could inflict as much devastation as those on the ground. So we decided to do a deep dive with someone ready and willing to execute launch orders. I'm Lou Laragoite. I was a naval officer on a nuclear ballistic missile submarine during the Cold War. The Navy's ballistic missile submarines, often referred to as boomers, serve as an undetectable launch platform for submarine-launched ballistic missiles, or SLBMs. They're designed specifically for stealth and the precise delivery of nuclear warheads. Lou, can you give us an idea of the mission and what a typical day was like for you? Our mission was to remain undetected and ready to launch missiles if given the order. Last man down, hats are shut. My work day was typically 16 hours. I'd wake up at the forward portion of the submarine, walk to the engine room through the missile compartment, through rows of missile tubes. We called it Sherwood Forest. I'd walk over the shielded nuclear reactor compartment and stand a six-hour watch overseeing the operation of the submarine's nuclear reactor and engine room. Sometime later, I would stand another six-hour watch as the officer in charge of operation of the submarine. Okay, you set me up for this one, but I think I know, but I must ask, what is the Sherwood Forest? Well, if you walk through the missile tubes, each one was probably um, over six feet in diameter. And looking through down the missile compartment, you would just see these rows and rows of missile tubes, and it looked like a forest. We called it Sherwood Forest. Okay. Well, that that makes sense. Let me get into the nuts and bolts of this with you. Can you tell me about the process of receiving a launch order? If we received an order to launch, two people, of which I was one of them, would independently review the message format verify that the message code was consistent with the code that we removed from a lock safe. We would present the message and verification to the executive officer and declare that the message was proper and verified. At that point, the XO would independently verify the message and all three of us would present it to the captain. At that point, the commanding officer would then declare battle stations in preparation for missile launch if in fact it was a valid launch order. I think for many, and myself included, validating a launch order must have been the scariest part because of maybe a possible computer malfunction. And this was the early 1980s, right? Well, even though computers might have been involved on the periphery, 
the computer did not make or communicate the decision. Uh, the decision to launch was made by people based on their analysis of the threat. Each step in the communication of the order had discipline of checks and verification, and I trusted the system. That's an enormous responsibility that you had. And how old were you at that time? I was 22 when I reported to my submarine. And prior to that, I had 18 months of training on nuclear reactors and submarines. The demographics for a submarine, if you didn't include the CO, the XO, and the department heads, everybody was roughly in their early 20s to mid 20s. For myself, it was a lot of responsibility considering the capability of our submarine. But I grew up in an era when people had bomb shelters in their backyard. And from a young age, I knew our country would never implement a nuclear first strike. Instead, we employed the strategy of having an overwhelming number of missiles with the promise of mutual assured destruction. And as terrible as that sounds, it's comforting in that it was the ultimate deterrent. I want to ask you about the red button. I think a lot of us have this image in our heads of the red button being pushed and it's all over. Is there even a red button? <laughs> the the, the ever, ever uh, elusive button that you see on TV. It's a little bit different on a submarine uh, than what you might see uh, in a movie. The most important thing is that you had two independent keys that were churned, which allowed the ultimately the missiles to be fired. Uh, the person that actually would launch the missile was not the captain, not the XO, but the weapons officer who was stationed in the missile uh, compartment. And once the order to launch was given and the keys were turned appropriately, he would have what you could envision as the handle of a pistol. And at the top of that handle of the pistol would be a button. And that was the button that he pushed. The last question I have for you is really the only question that really matters. If you knew with 100% accuracy that you had a verified launch code, would you pass that along to the weapons officer to launch the missile without hesitation? Absolutely. That was the job I was trained for. That was our mission. If it was a valid code, then that's what we were going to do. Even knowing full well the ramifications? Well, the ramifications is that it would be mutual assured destruction, most likely. And the world as we knew it would never be the same. A 1983 opinion poll found that about half of Americans thought they would die in a nuclear war. That might have had something to do with a very popular movie that raised awareness of an accidental first strike. One might even say it raised it to the level of DEFCON 1. Shall we play a game? In 1983, War Games hit the big screen. It starred Matthew Broderick, and it was a chilling movie about hacking and the vulnerability of networks and computers in a fun sort of way. Let's play Global Thermonuclear War. Fine. It struck a nerve that reached all the way to the White House. Ronald Reagan, a former Hollywood star, screened war games at Camp David, and it rattled him. General, do you really believe that the enemy would attack without provocation, using so many missiles, bombers, and subs, so that we would have no choice but to totally annihilate them? Five days after seeing it, the president was in a meeting with General John Vesey, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Mr. Reagan asked him, 
Could something like this really happen? One week later, the general returned with the answer. Mr. President, the problem is much worse than you think. Here's a fun fact. That led to a revamping of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. In 1986, the Senate amended the Federal Criminal Code to change the scienter requirement from knowingly to intentionally for certain offenses regarding accessing the computer files of another. Later, in 1983, President Reagan had another nuclear pop culture awakening. This one really got to him. It was a movie made for television called The Day After. And get this, the tagline was, when the war games are real. What's going on? Those are Miniman missiles. They're on their way to Russia. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. So do theirs, right? Missile warning, this is me. All confidence is high. It depicted the results of a nuclear exchange between the United States and the then Soviet Union, not from the point of view of politicians or the military, but rather uh, from the geographical crosshairs of the continental United States, namely Lawrence, Kansas. I'm Nicholas Meyer. I directed the television movie, The Day After. These days, when it comes to what to watch on TV, we have a plethora of options. And sometimes it's almost overwhelming. But that's a good problem. I know it's hard for some to believe now, but in the early 1980s, what to watch on TV wasn't an issue. Because you basically didn't have any choices. Aside from a few local channels, there was just CBS, NBC, and ABC. And most of what they had on was pretty tame and not very provocative. So in November of 1983, when ABC aired The Day After, a dramatization of a nuclear attack on American soil, it was a big deal. Not just a big deal, it was a really big deal. Goodness knows no one had ever thought to broadcast a television film about nuclear war. And I don't think anybody predicted that people were going to watch the movie, let alone watch it in the numbers, the unprecedented numbers that they did. 100 million. That's how many saw the day after. 100 million. Even now it remains TV's highest rated movie. We're with Nick Meyer, who is a novelist, screenwriter, and director. In 1982, he directed the blockbuster movie Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Then, ABC hired him to direct The Day After, which you can check out on YouTube. It was impactful visually and emotionally, and it was a harbinger of an arms reduction treaty. Nick, thanks for joining us. We're talking about the arms reduction treaty in 1987. But four years before that, you directed a movie that had a rippling effect, reaching the White House and President Reagan. Before we talk about that, I want to ask you, when did you first realize it was going to be this enormous television event and create such an impact? You know, I, when I talk about the movie, I like to say this is the optimist's view of nuclear war. This is nuclear war on a good day. When my cut of the movie was essentially finished and I took it over to ABC in Century City and we screened the movie, these were all, you know, corporate officers of the network and 
They all came out of the movie sobbing. Well, I'd say that's a pretty good indicator that you had something special. Nick, were you trying to make the day after a big, flashy Hollywood-type picture like Star Trek, or were you going for something different? If the movie was too good, quote, as a movie, we'd all be talking about the movie and not about the it, what the movie is about. Roger, copy. This is not an exercise. Roger, understand. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time. ICBMs. Numerous ICBMs. Roger, understand. Over 300 missiles inbound now. I didn't want anybody talking about the cinematography. My God, it's the most beautiful movie ever made. I didn't want somebody discussing the music of the movie. So there's virtually no music in the movie. I didn't want to be accused of goosing anybody's emotions. And it, it's counterintuitive in the sense that I'm a movie director. I want to make a good movie. I want to make a great, you know, knock them socks off movie. And I had to stop myself from going in that direction. Right. Well, let's face it. This is a subject that people aren't comfortable talking about or even wanting to think about. So describe the challenge that you must have had to make a movie that you want people to watch and not get so turned off that they turn it off. Making the day after real enough to be, you know, sort of in the ballpark truthful, but not so appalling that people grab the clicker and switch to something else is a very difficult line to tread. It was very important to us that the movie be real. It was important enough that it not be so graphic, and it's pretty graphic, but it not be so graphic that people change channels. We had no idea who was going to stick around for this. Self-evidently, the sponsors were not. That was going to be my next question. Television is all about selling commercial time. Was that an issue for a show like this? Yes, all the sponsors bailed General Foods, General Motors, General Mills. All the generals headed for the hills. Meanwhile, the White House and Ronald Reagan uh, kept hearing more and more alarming things about the the movie and worrying about its effect on the anti-nuclear movement. At this point, Ronald Reagan had still not seen the movie. Prior to the president seeing it, the decision was made to have the Joint Chiefs watch it. By sheer coincidence, Nick had an old friend that worked at the State Department and was at the screening. So he got a call. Come down to the Pentagon and watch a movie with the Joint Chiefs. And he said, if you are hoping to draw blood over there, you succeeded. Those guys were completely quiet. You know, one picture is worth a thousand words. You can talk about this till the cows come home, but it's another thing to actually see it. The Joint Chiefs saw people engulfed by fireballs, turned into skeletons and vaporized. No wonder the White House tried unsuccessfully to cut scenes from the movie two days prior to the Sunday night air date. Politics wasn't the only concern. Psychologists were warning audiences that they could experience feelings of depression and helplessness and suggested watching the show in large groups. An 800 number was set up to help those in need. 
ABC distributed 500,000 copies of an eight-page viewer guide to schools, libraries, and churches. Even Mr. Rogers was concerned. He had shows about the anxieties that children might experience thinking about a nuclear war. They were called the Conflict Series. Like I said earlier, this was more than just a movie. This had become an event. I was certainly aware of the mounting controversy surrounding the prospective airing of the movie. You couldn't not be aware of it. It's a very upsetting movie. It was a movie like no other movie, and it had a profound impact on New York. More than 700 people packed Riverside Church tonight to watch the day after. Many said they came here because they were afraid to watch it alone. While the TV movie Nick, was being shown. when I mentioned our conversation to a few people at DIA, they absolutely recalled watching it. You must have heard hundreds of stories, too. Do any of them stand out? One of them that sticks out in my mind was a general on Castro's staff who said that the Cuban Missile Crisis had not been real to him until he saw the movie. You see the missiles leave the ground. You see people incinerated. And you realize, well, wait a minute, this is out there all the time, isn't it? In President Reagan's diary, he wrote this about the day after. Quote, it's very effective and left me greatly depressed. Whether it will be of help to the anti-nukes or not, I can't say. My own reaction was one of having to do all we can to have a deterrent and to see there is never a nuclear war. One thing I had not counted on was that one person's mind was, in effect, changed overnight by the movie, and that was Ronald Reagan. Live Tuesday, your favorites from all corners of the music world turn out to entertain and to see who the winners are on the record industry's biggest night, the Grammy Awards. With all the talent at the 1986 Grammy Awards, like Stevie Wonder and Bruce Springsteen, Phil Collins and Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson, it was pretty interesting that it was a song about nuclear catastrophe that opened the show. The song was Russians and the artist was Sting. If you're unfamiliar, you should really give it a listen. It's a beautiful song. Here's some of the lyrics. Mr. Reagan says we will protect you. I don't subscribe to this point of view. Believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. But Sting wasn't the only mononymous superstar sending out an SOS. Ladies and gentlemen, Prince. Turn it up. Y'all ain't ready for me. Ronnie Talk to Russia was Prince's dramatic plea for disarmament. He sings, Ronnie Talk to Russia before it's too late, before they blow up the world. I doubt very much that Ronnie Talk to Russia by Prince was on the Oval Office playlist. But... Mr. Reagan did take his advice and talk to the Russians, and we talked to someone who talked to Ronnie. He's comedian Yakov Shmernov. He was sort of a Russian special advisor to the president, but his advice came
came mostly in the form of jokes. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. They're not going anywhere. On our next episode, you'll hear about his life story and his special connection with President Reagan. He told us that when he met the president for the first time, he really cracked him up. And we can hear why. I told him when Americans landed on the moon, that was a big slap in the face to the Soviet government. So Brezhnev called all the cosmonauts into his office and said, Americans landed on the moon. We have to land on the sun. And they said, we can't do that. Comrade Brezhnev, we will burn up. And he said, you think I'm stupid? You land at night. (laughs) We saved the rest of that conversation for our next episode of DIA Connections, INF Treaty Part 2, Reagan and Smirnoff. To learn more about the Defense Intelligence Agency, check out our brand new, really sharp-looking website, dia.mil. And don't forget to rate, review, and follow DIA Connections. Thanks for listening.